So 1 Timothy 1 and verse 8. Let's hear what the Spirit has to say to his church. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with, whom, with which I've been entrusted. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy, because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Our Father, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, rebuking and training. And so as we reflect on those words this morning and as we direct our hearts and our minds to this uh, portion uh, of scripture, we pray that it would do those things. Would we be uh, corrected where our thinking is wrong? Would we be rebuked where we're walking astray? Would we be trained to become more like Christ? And Father, would would we be encouraged where our hearts are downcast. Father, send your spirit, uh, we pray, to take his word and plant it deep in our hearts. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you lose the church, you lose the gospel. If you lose the church, you lose the gospel. Uh, That's, I think, the the core message uh, of Paul's letter to Timothy. Just flick over the page, 1 Timothy 3. Uh, The verse that, if you you lose everything else over the next few weeks, uh, the verse that orientates us to the the key that unlocks Paul's concern for this church in Ephesus, it's found in chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul's stuck. He's trying to get to Ephesus where Timothy, this young minister, is working, but, but he can't get there yet. So he's written a letter. Verse 15, if I delay, what does Paul want? He wants Timothy and those reading the letter with him, to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. This letter is all about how to behave in the church. But but why? Is it just Paul wants good order? Is it so that he can look like the CEO of a a slick organisation? No. Verse 15, the church, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It is the church's job to hold up the truth of the gospel and hold it out to the world around. Now, 
Children, if you knock down the pillars, what's going to happen to the roof? Isaac? Exactly. Take down the pillars, the roof falls down. Okay, let's say we, 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 we put a big poster up, okay, made a big billboard. Um, Jesus is Lord. Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe in him. And we put it outside on a big, big pillar in the middle of Leeds. If the pillar fell down, no one would be able to see the message anymore. Uh, Paul is saying the church is like that pillar. Uh, not just that, that the church exists and therefore the gospel is held up, but if, if behavior in the church goes wrong, verse 15, if we, if, we, if we get church life wrong, then the pillar will begin to crumble. Not only will the pillar begin to crumble, but the buttress that holds the, 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 the gospel together almost. It's almost as if the gospel message itself begins to crumble. Now, in one sense, that's impossible. Okay, the gospel is true eternally, and God is never going to let it fail. It will win. But, but in Ephesus, or in Leeds, if we get household life wrong, then what will happen is that our clarity on the gospel will begin to crumble too. The instructions that Paul gives to the Ephesians, to Timothy, who's the minister in Ephesus, are, are meant both to make sure that the signpost is held up, but also to make sure the signpost holds it intact. Uh, the reason he teaches about elders or about how to care for widows uh, or about, as we'll see this morning, preaching, the reason he teaches about these matters is that only when the, the church gets them in place will they have the strong enough grip to, to hold on to the gospel. If they ignore Paul's instructions, then it's very likely their understanding, their grip of the gospel will begin to crumble and the gospel message will disappear. So Paul's not just concerned with slick organisations. Uh, it's not that he's just the kind of guy who really likes rules. Rather, it's all about holding up and out the gospel. And this morning, uh, in verses 8 through 20, really the whole of chapter 1, to be honest, uh, Paul's concern is with guarding the front door. I heard uh, George tell me that some friends um, who've just had their front door replaced, and when the guy came up to replace the front door, uh, he said, I'll show you how bad your old one was, and put a little bar on it, and just went like that, and the whole thing popped off. Okay, your, your front door is to keep you safe, isn't it? Uh, the front door is meant to secure your house, to, to, to guard who comes in and who, who doesn't. And Paul's concern in chapter one for Timothy is that he is tight in guarding the front door of the church, particularly those who preach. Uh, so look at verse uh, three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Okay. Stop people teaching wrongly. Stop the guys who are getting up and teaching a gospel message that is different to the one that I've been teaching you, says Paul. And if you look down to verse 18, the charge comes back again, the command from Paul, the general, to Timothy, the lieutenant. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies made about you. Okay, so the whole of chapter one is about this charge. Guard, guard the preaching of God's word. Uh, we thought about the first seven verses last week, so 8 through 20 this morning. And particularly, I think Paul's concern is that uh, the, the, the Two ways God speaks to us are clearly distinguished. Uh, the first he calls the law, and the second is the gospel. So law and gospel. Uh, in verse 8 through 11, Paul talks about the law. Uh, that's the first thing we're thinking about this morning, the law. So the first thing that, that, that I want to say to you this morning, what Paul says to us through the Spirit, is the law destroys you and directs you. Okay, the law's job is to destroy you and direct you. Uh, we've seen uh, in the first few verses, uh, these false teachers in verse 5 to 7, they're particularly called teachers of the law. 
Uh, verse 7, these guys desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't have understanding. So you might think, well, okay, teaching the law is a bad thing. And straight away, Paul corrects that mindset. Verse 8, we know that the law is good. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Children, is fire good or bad? Silly question, isn't it? Exactly. Is fire good in the fireplace? Yes. Is fire good on the curtains? No, exactly. Uh, The law is like fire. Used rightly, it's helpful. It has its role. Used wrongly, it can be disastrous. So what is the right use of the law? Why did God give us the law? Well, let's just back up a minute. What does he mean by law? Uh, when he talks about teachers of the law a couple of verses earlier, he's probably talking about those who teach, um, who are teaching the Old Testament, as we call it. Of course, in Timothy's day, the, the New Testament hadn't been fully written, so they didn't distinguish between old and new. And often in the New Testament, law refers to the, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as these guys are obsessed with genealogies, verse 4, it's likely that they are the kind of guys who are finding weird and wonderful truths uh, in the first five books of the Bible. But Paul's use of the word law here, I think is a bit more focused. I think here he's moving on, rather than just saying the law as in the books of Moses are good, I think his focus is particularly on law in the sense of how God wants you to live. The reason I say that is, if you look at verse uh, nine onwards, he lists in verse nine and 10, a whole load of commands or a whole load of ways of disobeying the commands, I suppose you'd say, you know, lying, uh, sexual morality, mistreating your father and mother. That The focus more narrowly here is on the commanding aspect of the law, I think. So, so how are we rightly to use God's commands? You know, do not steal, do not commit adultery, those kind of commands. How are we rightly to use them? Well, the first thing Paul says, strange, isn't it? See verse uh, 9. The law is not laid down for the just but rather for the lawless. Why is the law not for the just? Some people read that and said, what Paul's saying is, look, the law isn't for those of us who are Christians, because the word just there is that same word as sometimes is used for those who are justified. That is those who've been forgiven and declared not guilty in God's court, righteous in God's court. So some people take that verse and say, look, once you're a Christian, you don't need God's law anymore. You don't need to listen to him telling you how to behave because you're forgiven. Now, there is a sense in which we're not under the law anymore. Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. But fundamentally, we're not under the law because it's not the law that saves us. Okay, you can't keep the law and be saved. So at points, Paul is very clear to say we're not under the law. We're not under the law as we're being saved. We're not under the law in terms of still living like Israelites under that Mosaic covenant. But I don't think here Paul can be saying that once you're a Christian, um, you no longer have to listen to God telling you how to live. Uh, why not? Firstly, it makes no sense, does it? So you're a burglar, uh, children, you know, you've been stealing, breaking into houses at night, stealing everyone else's teddies and toys, and then you become a Christian, and God forgives you that sin. Stealing is a sin. You're forgiven. Thank the Lord I'm forgiven freely by God's grace. And then the next day you get up. Is it okay to go stealing and burgling? Well, of course not, because the command, do not steal, still applies to you. You're not saved by keeping the command, but God's commands rest upon you. It would make no sense to say that once you're Christian, somehow the law sort of disappears and you can just follow your heart or follow the spirit. When we're in heaven, perhaps that'll be the case, but sin still remains in us. So we still need God's law, God's commands to guide us, to show us how to live. And actually, that's exactly what Paul does very often in his letters. Uh, The first half of the letter will explain what God has done for us, the gospel. 
And the second half will say, therefore, live like this. So Ephesians has three, three and a half chapters of wondrous reflections on, on what God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have done in saving us. And the second half of the letter, Paul gives a load of law. No longer steal, but work hard and share. In fact, sometimes he even quotes the Old Testament law. He says to children, uh, he says to children, obey, honor your mother and father, for this is the first commandment that comes with a promise. And he's quoting directly from the, the Ten Commandments in that case. Uh, later on, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, and verse 18, 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, uh, he's dealing with the whole issue of, look, sh- should we pay our ministers or not? And you can imagine them getting confused, you know, is it going to, is it going to make them just sort of money-grabbing type people if we pay ministers? Should it just be the kind of thing which is done voluntarily because they love the Lord and they're having that whole debate? Verse 18, uh, Paul says yes, or in verse 17 essentially he says yes, they're, they're worthy of double honour, which is a, a monetary term. Verse 18, why? For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He's quoted from Deuteronomy. Okay. Should, should you pay your elders, your minister, Paul says, yeah, because of Deuteronomy, don't muzzle an ox. Now, that might seem a strange answer to you at the moment. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But but the principle I'm trying to get across now is, when the church in Ephesus was sitting down trying to work out what should we do with our ministers, Paul says, well, the answer was already there for you in Deuteronomy. You just need to think about Deuteronomy carefully. So when Paul says the law is not for the just, he can't be saying the law is not for those of us who've been justified, forgiven. So what is he saying? I think he's simply saying this, the law is given because we are sinners. The law is given because we are sinners. If we weren't sinners, there'd be no need for the law. And we are all sinners. Paul in verse 15 says he is the foremost, the worst of sinners, even though he's now a believer. And that sense, it's a bit like a speed limit. Why are there speed limits? Why does the government feel the need to say that it's a 70 mile an hour cap on the motorway or a 38 mile an hour through town? If we all just naturally drove slowly and carefully, there'd be no need, would there? But we don't. The reason there are laws in general in lands, and this goes for God's law too, is because naturally we are rebellious. And so God puts the fence post in to say, no, this is too far. You're transgressing here. And in particular, the law does two things. First of all, it destroys us. I have a look down at the kind of laws that Paul quotes in verse 9. Uh, the law is laid down for the lawless, the disobedient. Well, those are catch-all terms, aren't they? The ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, many practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Some of those are sort of big flashpoint sins that our culture is obsessed with. Other than them are just small things like lying, as we would see it. But somehow we're all caught. The first thing the Lord does to every human being is say, look, you are not righteous. You're not able to march into the gates of heaven and say, look at me, God, I've lived the kind of life that means I belong in your kingdom. When you hear God's law taught, when you hear the standard that we should be living as Christians, as human beings, frankly, then we're humbled. It deconstructs us, if you like. It shows us our sin. In that way, the law is a bit like an x-ray machine. It shows up the problem. Now, children, can an x-ray machine make you better? No, of course not. It can show you the bone's broken, but it can't bend the bone. The law can't save you. That's why we're not under law. It's not going to save us. But it does show us the problem. And that's why I think verses 9 and 10 are, are humbling to us, whether we're religious people or not. 
Okay, if we're not religious people at all, we're not, we wouldn't say we're particularly uh, Christian or any other religion, and then we might be quite upset, particularly by verse 10, talk about sexual morality, homosexuality. That's, it is culturally offensive to say that, um, that, that, that God or anyone else um, should have a say in how, how we live our sex lives. And notice, by the way, that he doesn't raise one above the other. Sexual morality in the Bible is just any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. But equally, if we're religious type people, verses 9 and 10 are equally humbling. There is no room for anyone to read those verses and say, yeah, I'm okay, actually. Can any of us say, in all honesty, we've never lied. We've never sinned. We've never dishonored our parents. Whoever we are, the Lord destroys us. And therefore, it drives us to Christ for salvation. That's going to be the the big part of uh, verses 12 through 17. So I'm going to pause that for now. But but when we realize that I've got no hope in myself, when we realize I must have forgiveness, when the x-ray work of the law is done and I see my sin, it it means that actually I will seek salvation. If I think I'm I'm okay, then I'm never going to go to Christ. And that's a bit like the the two men in the temple. Children, do you remember the story uh, that Jesus tells? The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, who's very religious, comes into the temple and says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast, I pray. Uh, the tax collector stays at a distance and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes home saved. So the Lord destroys us, but it then directs us. Uh, once we've been driven to Christ, which is what we're going to come to, it then directs us, it tells us how to live. It's the pathway to walk on. A Christian, at the end of the day, is a justified sinner, forgiven sinner. And once we've been forgiven and are confident in our salvation, we want to say, well, how do I live for you, Lord? And that's where his word comes and says, well, like this. Now, the question comes, of course, well, which laws? The Bible's full of things to do. How do we know which ones we're meant to obey? Uh, You'll know, perhaps, that sometimes, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, there are what you could generally call ceremonial laws. They're things like sacrifice a goat if you commit this sin. Uh, bring these crops on this day of the week, wear these kind of clothes. Uh, Well, those laws, it's not so much we don't obey them anymore, but we don't obey them directly, if you like. So take the laws about sacrificing lambs. They were always shadows, pointers, signposts, pointing forward and teaching people that they needed a perfect lamb to die for their sins, a perfect being to die for their sins. Ultimately, Jesus comes along and John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world, who takes away the sins of the world. So so when I read a law in the Old Testament that says sacrifice a lamb, I don't go and kill a lamb. I trust Christ, the true lamb. But the law still stands, just put through the the spectrum of Christ. But there are other laws that you could broadly call moral laws. And these are what I think he, Paul, lists here. It's interesting, isn't it? He, He doesn't list any of the Old Testament laws about wearing special clothes or eating special foods or sacrifices or anything like that. They're all what you might call moral behavioral laws. And particularly, if you look at um, fathers and mothers onwards, so halfway through verse 9, back end of verse 9, can you see how they're being shaped? Okay, where he's getting these from? Uh, Those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's the fifth commandment. What's the sixth commandment? Do not murder. What's Paul's next command? Murderers. What's the seventh commandment? Do not commit adultery. What are Paul's next commands? The sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Sexual immorality. What's the next command? Eighth commandment, do not steal. What's Paul's next commandment? Well, ESV has enslavers, uh, but very literally it's man-stealers. So there it is. 
Uh, what's the ninth commandment? Don't, don't bear false witness. What does Paul go for? Liars and perjurers. Do you see he's, he's sort of echoing the Ten Commandments there, the back end of them uh, at least. Uh, and actually, uh, if you keep a finger in 1 Timothy, come to Exodus 21 or Exodus 20. Uh, page 61. Uh, these moral laws, okay, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie. Uh, they're given in the Ten Commandments at Sinai. That's in Exodus 20. Uh, but it's in Exodus 21 onwards. Okay, we're not in the Ten Commandments anymore. We're in, in other laws that Paul, that Paul uh, sorry, that, that God gives through Moses. But we still see many of them are moral. So look at verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. That's exactly Paul's phrase. In 1 Timothy, it wasn't just those who disobey their father and mother, it was those who strike their father and mother. Uh, what's the next verse? 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Verse 16 of Exodus, what came after striking your father and mother in 1 Timothy? Those who enslave men. What Paul is able to do, if you come back to 1 Timothy, is, is look at the Old Testament and realise what things, if you like, are continual rules that, that mankind is always meant to obey and which things are just well for a time like those ceremonial laws uh, fundamentally there is a core that runs through the bible like you know, if you buy a stick of rock children and it has a message written on it have you ever had one of those sticks of rock where you see that you get them at the seaside and it's a nice long suite and right in the middle it might be sort of welcome to blackpool or something like that and the same message runs all the way through all the way through the bible there are certain ways that we're meant to live in obedience to god because those laws reflect god's character so uh, for example god is a god of life so we're told not to murder uh, god is uh, the god of truth so we're told not to lie god is a faithful god so we in reflecting his character are to remain faithful in our marriages so God's moral law reflects God's character or our status as creatures. Uh, God is sovereign and in charge of everything. And so we're not to covet. We're not to desire things that he hasn't given us. Uh, God never sleeps or slumbers, as the Psalms tell us. Whereas we are creatures who need rest. So we're told to have a Sabbath rest. Uh, there is something unchanging about God's moral law for human beings. That's entirely different from don't eat prawns or... Uh, don't eat pork. Uh, those things aren't moral. God could just as well have decided that they can eat prawns, but they can't eat trout. Okay, they were temporary laws for a time, but the moral law, as Paul summarizes it here, remains forever. And so in that way, the, the law is a bit like a map. Okay, children, I want you to imagine, imagine you're lost. Okay? Uh, you know you're meant to be walking by a river in order to find uh, a secret cave. And you look around yourself and it's snowing and you're on top of the mountain and you've got no idea where you are. And you open the map, the map can show you you're not in the right place. Okay, you look around, you see a tree next to you uh, and you see a mountain top, but no river. And you look on the map and you see your pathway is meant to be nigh a river and you think, okay, the map has shown me I'm lost. The Lord does that. It shows us we're lost. But it can't save us. What you need is mountain rescue to come in his helicopter, pick you up, save you, pop you on the right path. And once you're on the right path, the law is useful again, like a map. Ah, now I'm on the right path. I can try and follow it. I might still wander wrong. I might need the man to come and put me back on path. But it can direct me. The law destroys me and directs me. And that is how to rightly use the law because it's given for sinners, not perfect people. So two questions. 
uh, simply for us, I guess. Uh, first of all, are you using God's word, God's law, to, to, to destroy you, to take you apart, to humble you, to show you where you're wandering from the path? It is like the mirror in the morning. You know, you brush your teeth, uh, or you'll shave, whatever it is. You look in the mirror to see if you've still got toothpaste in your mouth or shaving cream, whatever it might be. And when you see it, you change, if you've got any sense. When you see your hairs all over the place, you comb it. That's what the law is meant to do. If you've been a Christian a while, it's just easy to become a little bit complacent. I'm sort of doing okay. I'm no longer repenting of my sin. I'm no longer letting God's word show me where I'm wandering from the path. The Christian life is meant to be one of continual repentance. As society tells us, we're meant to build ourselves up all the time. You know, I'm great. Affirm yourself. Believe in yourself. God comes and says, look, that's... That's not the way to true joy. The true way to true joy is to realise you're not as great as you should be, but that's okay because Christ came to save sinners. Is the Lord destroying you and therefore driving you back to Christ? And then secondly, is it, is it distri- directing you? Sorry, is it directing you? So many of our questions are about guidance. How am I meant to live, Lord? You know, what do you want me to do? And we get obsessed with particular questions. Do you want me to be a, you know, a farmer or a chemist? Do you want me to be a baker, a candlestick maker, a butler? What, you know, what do, I, do you want me to marry Sally or, or Susie uh, or Samantha? And we obsess with those kind of questions, but God's word has got so much to say about the things he really cares about, which is living a life that we're increasingly made into Christ's image, God's image. Uh, that in verse 11, you see, is, is why I think Paul says that this, all this law that he's just laid down is in accordance with the gospel. It's not that the law is the gospel, the law doesn't save you. But the point of the gospel, once you're forgiven, is not to leave you unchanged, but to transform you. You're forgiven fully and freely, and then taught how to walk. So in terms of salvation, law and gospel are enemies. The law cannot save you, only Christ can. But in terms of becoming like Christ, they're friends. Uh, They work together to transform you. The Lord destroys and directs you. But secondly, uh, and finally, in verses 12 to 17, Christ saves sinners. Christ, Christ alone saves sinners. The Lord destroys and directs you, but Christ it is who saves sinners. Verses 12 to 17. Paul Paul tells his story, really. It's his testimony. And I think he tells his story to show that the law is useless to save you. You He knows the law. He was a teacher of the law. He knows the Old Testament inside and out. But it couldn't save me, says Paul. Rather, Christ alone came to save me. So in verse 13, he reflects on his former life before Christ came and forgave him. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an innocent opponent. Do you remember Paul was one of the ones leading the charge against the early Christians? He was the one who would organise for Christians to be stoned, to be killed. He was the one who denied that Christ was Lord. Paul's saying, look, I, I was as bad as you could get. And yet, verse 13, I received mercy. Even though I was the worst of the sinners, twice he says I was the worst of sinners, the foremost of sinners. Verse 15 and verse 16. But Christ came to save sinners. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Five times in these pastoral epistles, as they're called, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul says this saying is a trustworthy saying. These, if you like, are the five house mottos. You know, companies have their their mottos, you know, Google, don't be evil, Nike, just do it. But Paul has five trustworthy sayings that he peppers throughout these letters to young ministers. These structure life in the household of God. Here's the, the first one. It's about your teaching, essentially. Paul says to Timothy, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 
Christ came not just to teach you how to live, and not just to do good as an example, but to save. By the way, it shows that Christ existed before he came. Uh, you could never say, I couldn't say I came into the world to be a minister. I had nothing to do with coming into the world. My parents' decision. But Christ chose to come. He was, he was and remains God, and he took on flesh, became man, in order to save. And you see three jewels that decorate Christ, three characteristics of Christ that Paul picks out. Mercy, grace, and patience. Verse 13, I received mercy. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Okay? I deserve to be punished, says Paul, but Christ didn't pers- punish me. He, he didn't give me what I deserved. But it was better than that. Verse 14, he gave me grace, grace that overflowed. Christ is like a fountain overflowing with grace. It's so much grace in him that it just can't be contained. It has to be poured out on other people. Uh, grace is, if, if you like, even greater than mercy. If mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, then grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. It's not just that he doesn't punish us in hell, but that he does give us heaven. Not just that he doesn't cast us away from himself, but he does bring us into relationship with himself. Uh, he freely gives us the riches of eternal life, of relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, free forgiveness. And it's gracious. It's not earned because of anything we do, but freely given for anyone who op- receive it open-handedly. And, and Christ is so patient, verse 16. He didn't get so fed up with Paul that after, look, Paul, you've done too much now. I could put up with you when you were just a bit pompous and self-righteous and you were teaching wrongly, but when you started killing people, that was too much. No, even then, Christ was patient and willing to forgive. All three characteristics, mercy, grace, patience, uh, work together to save Paul. Uh, might be just worth noting uh, in verse 13, when he says, I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, he's not saying that, 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 that he got mercy because actually it wasn't really his fault. Didn't know what I was doing, my bad. As if it was sort of an innocent mistake. If that was the case, it wouldn't make any sense. He wouldn't need mercy. Okay, if, if you don't know what you're doing is wrong, then it, it's not your fault. I think rather what he's saying there is, um, I still needed mercy, I still needed forgiving, I still needed grace, but, but I, I, it, what I was doing was not high-handedly rebelling a, against God. Sometimes in, in, in the Old Testament, um, there's a distinction made between high-handed sins and sins of wandering. We're guilty for both. Think of Christ on the cross. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He still has to say, Father, forgive them. They still need forgiving. It's just what they're doing isn't this... I know whom I'm killing and I'm doing it deliberately kind of sin. It's I'm so wrapped up in my sin that I don't even realise how bad I'm being. So it's not innocent, uh, but it's different from the um, I fully understand what I'm doing and I'm still going to do it anyway kind of sin. Uh, Anyway, mercy, grace and patience pile up. And so for us, well, two things. First of all, come. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, if you're not someone who's found Christ, just come. Come to him. That's all you need to do. It's grace. It's mercy. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin so you could be freely forgiven. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pay. You don't have to chip in. And if you're a Christian, find comfort. Come again, if you like, to him. Paul is the worst of sinners. And it's present tense. I am the worst of sinners. Not I was, but now I'm quite good. But I am the foremost of sinners twice. Uh, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in you, as one of the old Puritans said. 
His grace will never run out for you. His mercy will never run out for you. If you're crushed, if you feel like you're a useless Christian, okay, your little Bible study group, everyone else seems together and you're a mess. Well, actually, that's kind of healthy. The law is doing your work. You might be a bit of a mess. We're all a mess. Some of us can put on makeup and cover it up better than others. Some of us can put on a decent mask and hide it away. Not particularly healthy, but we can do it. But we're all a mess. That is the law doing its work. But the law is to drive you to the gospel. Christ came for messes, for sinners. Come and find comfort, endless mercy, endless patience. You will never, your sin will never outweigh his mercy. And, and the two things it's meant to lead to, therefore, are worship and warfare. In verse 17, Paul explodes into praise. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. The test of, that we've understood the gospel, that the law has destroyed us and the gospel has rescued us, is we burst into praise. So rather than a doctrine exam, you test someone's orthodoxy, I suppose, with a thermometer. You know, how white hot is their worship? How full of praise are they to God? Uh, worship and warfare in verses 18 to 20. We haven't got time to look at it in, in much detail now. But, 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 but Paul uses military ex- uh, language. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, verse 18, wage the good warfare. Uh, the charge, again, is make sure this is what is taught in your church. Hold the faith. It's not hold on to your faith down there in the verse. It's hold the faith, verse eight, 19. The faith that I entrusted to you the right understanding of the law and gospel, hold on to it and don't let anyone else teach you anything else. Uh, interesting, by the way, he doesn't just say hold on to the scriptures, make sure the Bible is taught. Now, he will say that elsewhere and that is very important, but he's saying more than that because most of the time throughout church history, false teachers have taught the Bible. These guys are teachers of the law, teachers of the Old Testament, they're just teaching it wrongly. So what activity has to guide is the right understanding of the Bible. Most cults, most false teachers will teach the Bible, but not teach it rightly. So hold on to the faith that was entrusted to Paul and passed on down the generations. Uh, if you don't, well, you might end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? These two teachers who Paul says he's handed over to Satan. Now, we're not to imagine that Paul has had a meeting with the devil and sort of handcuffed Hymenaeus and Alexander and literally handed them over. It, rather, it's, it's this idea that you know, the church is like a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And outside the kingdom of God, sometimes Paul calls the world the kingdom of Satan. So what Paul is saying is, look, I've had to throw them out of the church. This is the idea of church discipline we talked about in Sunday school a couple of weeks ago. They are teaching falsely, and so I I couldn't let them keep going. I've had to put them out of the church in the hope, of course, that they'll repent and come back. But you see how serious Paul takes it? It is war. You must make sure the gospel of grace and mercy is taught. The law will condemn people but Christ alone will save them. If that feels too strong, then we haven't understood how serious the issues are. If our worship is half-hearted, then probably the law hasn't destroyed us enough, we haven't realised how bad we are, and the gospel hasn't revealed how great Christ is. We need both to do their work. In that sense, children, it's a bit like being on a seesaw. If you want Christ to be lifted up, you have to go down. If you sit on a seesaw and... uh, you sit on one end and your friend sits on the other end. You might, you might go down a little bit. They might go up to anyone's head. Mummy sits on the other end. She's probably going to be a bit heavier than you. So you're probably going to go up. Daddy sits on the other end. Woo-hoo. Okay, you're going to be miles in the air and daddy's going to be far down. Okay, the further you push down one side, the higher up the other lifts. Well, think of the law and the gospel. The further the law pushes us down, the more Christ will lift us up. 
If we think we've just slightly broken the law, you know, we're not too bad, then Christ might help us, but he's not that necessary. If we realize we're completely lost, then Christ is raised on high. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Let the Lord destroy you in order that Christ might be raised up and you might find true joy, true comfort. And you might join Paul in saying to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you. You've sent your spirit and your word into this world to convict us of our sin. We pray that we wouldn't become complacent and uh, cease examining ourselves in the mirror of your word. Uh, We pray to you that that self-examination, when it does tear down our pride, our self-righteousness, will drive us to Christ and we will see in him all the comfort of heaven. We praise that he is a a God and a saviour full of grace and mercy and patience. We come to him again and ask for those great gifts. We pray you transform us therefore into people both white hot in our worship of him, Sunday by Sunday and week by week as we live out lives uh, of service to him. And also we pray, Father, that you would direct us by your word and make us those who walk in his pathways in increasing measure. Do this, we pray, for his glory's sake. Amen.